0: You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. This is a very familiar story, the story of Israel, or the Hebrews, actually, kind of passing through the Red Sea. They had yet to become Israel, right? God had made a promise to his friend Abraham that, Abraham, I'll be your God. You can be my person. Uh, I will give you a family. Uh, Through your family, I will make a nation. Through that nation, I will bless the world. But it had been hundreds and hundreds of years since that had happened. Just think about that. There was a promise of God, and then there was all of this time, much longer than the United States has existed Was the time between the promise to Abraham and the realization of his family becoming a nation. Because what had happened was his descendants, his family, we'll call them the Hebrews, had actually found themselves in slavery in Egypt. They weren't a nation, they were hardly a people group, right? And so it's never, um, we should never forget that God is not the God of the Egyptians. He's not the god of the powerful or of the slave owners but God is the god of the Hebrews. He's the god of the slaves. And God heard them cry and God answered their cry and in doing so he delivered them from Egypt through the Red Sea and at that time they became a nation. He would eventually lead them into the land and they would have you know a land and they would have a government And they would be a geopolitical state of sorts, right? But we can think of this uh, story of the crossing of the Red Sea as the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that that God would make his descendants into a, a nation. And when did that nation begin? It began here. And so the exodus, that story, and particularly the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, is to Israel what the 4th of July is to the United States. It's their Independence Day. It's when their nation began. And it's why it's such an important story in Scripture. It's a story that gets looked back to and remembered again and again and again. In fact, there's a major holiday uh, in Judaism to this day, called Passover, that celebrates the exodus, right, that this time of kind of coming out of the Red Sea. And as Christians, we experience our lives in ways that very much mimic this phenomenon, that there's an event or two in our lives that really kind of mark us, that kind of shape us, so that it becomes kind of who we are, and then that re- event will have to be remembered. It's a funny thing that the, that word "remember." If we break it down, right? So there's a "member," and then we're redoing it, right? We're remembering it to remember it. So it's like a piece of us that has to be kind of reattached. Like sometimes we get fractured in life, right? Sometimes things, you know, obviously life can be hard. Things don't go the way we think they're going to go. And we struggle. I don't need to list the, the various ways that that happens. You know exactly what I'm talking about, particularly in your own life. You know that it's like the God that you thought you were serving didn't always turn out to be the God you thought you were serving. Right? Things did not go. Like if God, who is, if God is who I thought God was, things would go maybe a little differently. And so... As we remember, as we remember those times in our lives, things change a bit. The, the, the memory becomes something new for us and, and the way in which we kind of connect with God. This will happen in this text as well. Like as Israel remembers the Exodus every year as they, as they celebrate the Passover, things will start to evolve and it will start to mean kind of new things, particularly... You know, um, as the nation kind of came to life and lived a life, it would eventually die, right? Israel came to a point that, you know, God had promised to Abraham, I'll be your God, I'll bless your family through that family, I'll make a nation through that nation, I'll bless the world. And that came to pass with the Exodus, but Israel didn't exist forever. Israel kind of limped along for a while. They had a little bit of a heyday under like David and Solomon, but then the then they split, kind of like a divorce. Like we had a family and then we got divorced, and now here we are. We're got a, two families. We got to go see mom. We got to go see dad. Got to go up to the northern kingdom. Got to come down to the southern kingdom. Things were rough, and then the northern kingdom gets destroyed, and so now we just have this small group. Then they're just kind of you know eking out their existence trying to make it. There's, not, there's a couple of revivals, like one under Josiah, one under Hezekiah, but for the most part, it's difficult times. It's hard times. And then that small group gets taken into captivity. If the exodus and the, and the passing through the Red Sea is the birth of the nation of Israel, then the exile into Babylon becomes the death of the nation of Israel. And now they have to Grapple with the realization that the promise that had been fulfilled has now died. They no longer are a nation. They're no longer living in their land. They're no longer occupying their homes. They no longer have a temple. The temple that had been built has now been destroyed. And they're living in a foreign land as captives to a foreign people. They are once again slaves. Like their forefathers and foremothers who were slaves in Egypt, they are now slaves in Babylon. And so what are you going to do with that? What can we possibly hope for at that time? What's interesting is at that time, the prophets kept reminding the Hebrews, the former Israelites, do you remember God? Do you remember the God who led us through the Red Sea? Do you remember God who parted the water? Do you remember God who spoke to Moses? And so you get words like Hosea, the prophet, will say, out of Egypt I have called my son. And it reminds them of who their God is. It reminds them of a story. They get to remember, like reattach, right, that thing that had been broken, that thing that had been fractured. And what's interesting is we get into the New Testament that they've come back from Babylon, but they're still under foreign control. I mean, they had been under control by the Persians and then the Greeks and now the Romans, but they hadn't experienced the realization of, of a kingdom that they, that they ran, right? A nation that might be seen as a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And it's at that time that Matthew is writing about the birth of Jesus, and he quotes Hosea, the prophet. He quotes Hosea's idea That says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, when Hosea said that, he was reminding Israel of that God had brought them out of the Exodus through the Red Sea, the parting of the waters. But Matthew now is remembering it differently. He's telling the story, but he's telling it, it's the same story, but it's a different lesson. Well, maybe it's the same lesson, but it's different details for sure. I don't know about the rest of you, but I I grew up in a a family that I feel like I heard the same stories over and over, right? We just tell the story, tell the story again, tell me that story, right? And, And the story sometimes took on, I don't know, new details or the kind of retelling, certainly kind of new lessons. And that's what's happening here, I think. When Matthew says, out of Egypt, I have called my son, he's not talking about the Exodus, He's talking about the Holy Family who had escaped from Herod the Great and are now coming out of Egypt. He says so much, he says it so forcefully that he actually says that Hosea was prophesying about that event. That when Hosea was reminding Israel that their forefathers and foremothers had come out of Israel, he was also prophesying that God's Son would come out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, rather, but God's Son would come out of Egypt. And the same thing happens in Luke. Luke doesn't tell us about the family going down into Egypt, but when Luke retells the story of Jesus, he will tell Jesus' baptism story uh, as a story that that parallels Israel coming through the water. That Jesus' baptism, the way Luke tells the story, is like another, another telling of Israel coming through the water. And then... After that, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days like they went in the wilderness for 40 years. And he points 12 apostles like they had 12 tribes. And all, you know, Luke is like telling the story in such a way that Jesus is the one that is living the story that Israel had lived. And I think the same thing can happen for us. Like, I think that's part of what our baptisms are for. Like, our baptism identifies us with Christ, who himself was identified with Israel, who is the promise or the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. This story is kind of all connected. And I'm going to share just a little bit of my story. And I'm, and I'm imagining that your stories, all of you, you have something in your life that you can also point back to. A time that, that God did something like a, a Red Sea experience. Like, what is the, the Red Sea experience in your life that has happened? So, I, I've, I've, talked, I've talked a lot over the years about my upbringing, kind of in the mountains of Virginia. You know, Appalachian American. But I, I was a really devout kid. Like I had a very existential faith. I believed in the Lord, and I talked to Him all the time. I just talking to God, just praying by myself in my room, getting down on my knees before I got in bed, standing up, raising my hands, walking around just by myself. Can you just imagine, like little ten-year-old Robbie, just just singing and praying and crying. I love the Lord. I had a very, very kind of tangible faith. I believed. My faith was strong as a kid. I don't know if it's, the, you know, they talk about the faith of children, like how you can believe in things. But man, I did. So I grew up in this home, and I was a good kid. Like, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of, you know, wrong things. Like, never smoked, never drank. I didn't even date a girl. I, would have, I wouldn't mind dating a girl, but I could never get a girl to like want to date me, so it didn't work out for me. I was kind of a band geek, you know? Played my saxophone. Wasn't very athletic. Really awkward kid. That was my life. And, uh, yeah, it, I, my, my relationship with God was, was strong. I, I ended up, you know, I went away to college, uh, went, you know, close to home called by my mother to major in chemistry so I could become a physician because according to her, that was a noble job. I think what she meant is that it provided a certain amount of financial stability that we didn't have, but she never said that part. But when I got there, I I took a class in the New Testament and was really enthralled by it. Like, I didn't know that you could teach the New Testament for a living. And I'm like, well, that's what I want to do right? And so I kind of made those plans. And then later, I'd gone to seminary, and I was on that path. And, uh, you know, Angela and I, by that time, were married, and we had two kids. No, let's see. By that time, we had one kid, Katie. And um, I found, we found out that she was pregnant with Hannah, although we didn't know she was Hannah at the time. <laughs> and uh, we moved at the time, my, I thought at that time, let's see if I get the story right, <laughs> it is my story, <laughs> but this is how the memory works, right? <laughs> what, what part of the details we tell each time we tell the story? I, uh, I thought I'd have to, to kind of change directions. My hope was to do the PhD and kind of teach, but coming out of seminary with the second kid, I thought financially that might, might not be possible. So I'm looking at other options. I thought I might be a military chaplain. I thought I might try to get a job at a church. I'm like working on my resume. I'm talking to a career counselor. And my dad comes to me and says, I don't want you to give up on your dream. So my dad had been through a lot of financial struggles. He was a very hard worker, but he wasn't a very successful businessman. So we had a lot of rags to riches. He had tried a lot of things and kind of had momentary success, but then, you know, failures. But at that time... He was running the maintenance department At this pharmaceutical manufacturer And he was doing quite well And he said he felt like God had blessed him with that job So that he, dad Could bless us, Angela and I So that we could kind of fulfill my dreams So we packed up And we moved to England And we're just over there Just living the good life I mean we were poor as dirt Like we didn't have a car We didn't have a TV This is before cell phones so we're walking, you know, everywhere to work and to church and to school. Um, I guess I didn't want to pay the 15 cents to ride the bus. I don't know. It's only a mile and a half. It was downhill, too. Of course, it was uphill coming home, but it was downhill on the way to school. Things were good. Things were real good. And so we came, we came back to the States, and life wasn't doing what I thought it should do. So at this time... I'm 26, I had two degrees, I had tens of thousands of dollars of debt, student loan debt, and I had a wife, I had two kids, but I didn't have a car, I didn't have a house, and I didn't have a job, and so I found myself living in the basement of my parents' house with my wife and two kids. Not exactly what you would call blessed, right? That's not success. Like, where are you, God? God? Like if you've called me, if you really want me to do this, how is it that I find myself with no money and no house and no car and no job living in the basement of my parents' house? That's difficult. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it. If you're married with two kids, the basement of your parents' house is not the best place to live. I just go ahead and tell you that right now. And so we were there for three months. And it was a hard three months. And I, I hated it. I was frustrated. I was mad at God. Like, I need things to work out. And every day, Dad would come home from work. Things hadn't worked out, but we'd sit, we'd talk, we'd eat. And then finally, things broke open. We found a place, found a job, moved, you know, a few hundred miles away into East Tennessee, and things were going to be okay. We were going to We'd made it through that rough spot, and we were going to take that next step. And we had lived there in the new home for a week. Actually, we, hadn't, we weren't in the home yet. We'd actually lived in a night's inn. I don't know if you know what a night's inn is. It's kind of like a motel. Not a hotel with an H. A motel with an M. Like, when you opened the door, you were outside. You weren't in a hallway. You know, that, that kind of uh, living facility. We had been there for a week waiting to get into this house that we were renting. And so it was the day we moved in, actually. It was, um, it was the Tuesday after Labor Day. And a friend came knocking on the door. His name was Corky Alexander. I did not change the name to protect the innocent. And Corky had a cell phone. And let me tell you, in 1997, that was... Yeah, that was like technology, right? He had a cell phone cuz we didn't have a phone, you know, plugged up to the house yet. And he said, "Your mom wants to talk to you." Well, that's weird. Why would mom call Corky? <laughs> so I get on the phone and it's my mom and she tells me that my dad had been killed in a car accident. And my life is wrecked. I mean, I don't know what it's like to live as a Hebrew slave. And I don't want to know. But as much as I've ever been broken, as much as I've ever been hurt, emotionally and psychologically and spiritually, it was that. The grief was overwhelming. You know, I'd lost my father. He was a confidant for me. He really supported me. I didn't know what to do. Those next several months in my life, they're a little bit of a blur now, 26 years later. But they were hard. And I struggled. And if you had asked me in that moment if I believed in God, if I were honest with you, I would have had to say, I don't know. I don't know if there is a God. I thought there was, but things aren't, this is not what I thought that was, like, maybe not maybe that's not real maybe that's just made up maybe that's a story we tell ourselves so we sleep better at night that's where I was and I needed to produce something for the, for the university I was still in the program and so I wrote this paper on the two witnesses from Revelation 11 and I, and I was presented it at this little seminar and I had no I, again, I, I, I had nothing. I was just, I was dead inside. And I uh, had a friend who was going to be there at that seminar. His name's Larry McQueen. I also did not change his name to protect the innocent. Um, Larry's really bright, and I thought, well, Larry will have some something good to say about this. I will write down what he said and turn that in. Now, that's cheating. <laughs> that's called plagiarism. It's like a form of stealing. But I didn't know if God was real, (laughs) and I needed to turn something in. So I went to the seminar, I presented the paper, Larry was there, the guy didn't open his mouth. If I'd held his nose, he might have died. Like, was he breathing? He's real quiet, very introverted guy. Still to this day, Larry's very introverted. Didn't say a word. Useless. About a week later, I get an email from Larry, and just to date it historically for you, I think at that time we still called them electronic mail. (laughs) It's before we actually called it email. And it's that dial-up sound, you know, beep, ah, (laughs) and it's loading slowly, and it's just text, (laughs) right? It's not even graphics, it's just loading slowly, and Larry's email says this. He says, remember, I've written on the two witnesses from Revelation 11. He said, Robbie, I think you found one of the two witnesses. It's your father. You need to find the other. Again, 100% useless. So I don't know if you know much about the professional world of biblical studies, but if you're working with one of the leading universities in Europe and you're wanting to get a Ph.D. there to write that you think your father is one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation and you're going to find the other, that doesn't get you a Ph.D. <laughs> that gets you invited out of the program. <laughs> like, what? What? What is that? That's useless. But anyway, thanks to Angela and thanks to my church, I, I lived not just physically, but spiritually, almost in like a triage. It's as though the faith of my wife and my church was was like a lifeline for me. Like, I, I almost flatlined, but I didn't quite. And I think what kept me from flatlining was the faith of my friends and family. And I lived off of that. For about a year and a half. And slowly it started kind of coming back. And I made my way kind of through the darkest, driest parts of that. The church had had this revival. and There had been all these new converts. And they decided they wanted to start a new convert Sunday school class. If you don't know what Sunday school is, that's when people come before the service and they meet in classrooms. And they study like scripture together. Kind of an older thing. So they said, Well, who's going to lead this new convert Sunday school class? And they said, Well, what about Robbie? You know, he's got you know, all these degrees and he's working on another, and, you know, surely he knows scripture. And I'm, and I'm like, Yeah. Right? I'm still not sure God exists, but I'll, I can teach the new convert Sunday school class. I'm perfect, perfect for it. And so I'm teaching this new convert Sunday school class, and there's this lady in there. Her name's Wanda Beck, also didn't change her name. And let me tell you, she's innocent. She's a real, she's past now, but she's a real mother figure in my life. So I'm teaching this new conference Sunday school class, and Wanda, her conversion was so tangible. Like, her faith was the faith of, of stories, right? Like, of scripture. Like, she called me one day, and she asked me if I knew what the term fornication meant. And I'm like, Yes. And then she, she was reading scripture, and she had read John chapter 5, um, excuse me, John, Gospel of John chapter 4, about the woman in Samaria by the well, who Jesus had said to her, um, go get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he goes, that's right, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Without exaggeration, Wanda had been married five times, and at that time was living with her boyfriend, who was not her husband like, is this me? I'm like, well, similar. <laughs> oh, I love Wanda. Later, um, Wanda would be speaking at this, um, this uh, women's conference. It's like 300 women. The room was packed. So I'd gone to hear. I think I was the only man there. There might have been another. I don't think so. And Wanda's recounting her story about all that she had been through. And Wanda was fond of saying um, she didn't think she could become Christian because she felt like she was too, too much of a sinner, like she was too depraved, like God could never forgive someone like her. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, hyperbole is not really helpful when we're thinking through spiritual formation. At least these are the kind of things I was saying to her. How helpful was that? And I'm like, can you give me an example? And she says, well, I've broken all Ten Commandments. And I'm like, Wanda, come on. You haven't broken all Ten Commandments. You know, who, who have you killed? And she tells the story about all these abortions that she had performed. And in particular, an abortion that she had talked a friend through doing on her. Um, after her second child, before after her first and before her second child. She had three girls. But in 1971, she had talked her friend through performing an abortion on her, and I guess it was late term. It was late enough that they were able to determine that the child would have been a boy. And I'm like, oh. So she's retelling her story now at this women's conference, and it was framed around this passage in Joel that says, Um, God says to, to Joel and Israel that he will return to them the years the canker worm has eaten. Like even the hard times, even the worst times, even after like not just fractured and broken and darkness and doubt and death, but when there's nothing left, nothing left, we serve the God of life and of resurrection And he can return to you the years that you've lost. Like, how is that even possible? And she says that God had returned to her the years the canker worm had eaten. In every single way. That there was nothing that she had lost that she didn't feel had been given back to her. Including her son. And she pointed me out in the room. And you see, I was born in 1971 the same year that Wanda had lost her son. And she felt like our relationship was God giving a son back to her and so that the Lord had returned all those things. There are other stories I could tell. I don't have time for it today. But that time in my life, and it was about three or four years that that took place there, has so shaped me that when I stand here or at the college, when I stand in the classroom, I'm there because (laughs) I am made for this. I'm there because I have this, this memory of this thing that God has done in my life that has shaped me, informed me, and called me to be here. One last story, and I know I'm running a little late, forgive me. Um, It was about a year and a half after dad had passed, there's this revival, and again, this is a story I've told before, there's a good chance some of you have heard it, but bear with me, indulge me. About a year and a half, and um, there's evangelists, and he's pacing back and forth, and People are all excited. I don't know if you'd have to experience kind of mountain Pentecostalism to get a real feel for what I'm talking about. But it's just fabulous times. <laughs> and he's, he's walking back and forth, and he's screaming into his microphone, and he's like, I'm looking for a Joshua. <laughs> you know the preachers with those deep baritone voices, a little gravelly? Looking for a Joshua. And uh, in the moment, I'm quite confident that he's going to ask someone to lead a Jericho march which is a particular form of worship that you may not know. It's where people follow each other around. It looks a little bit like a bunny hop, but it's different than that. Um, They follow each other around inside the sanctuary, and they walk around the sanctuary seven times. At the end of it, they shout with an expectation, not that the walls are going to fall, because if they did, that would be awful. They'd kill them. But that the metaphorical or the spiritual walls, right, the symbolic walls, the strongholds, are going to fall in their lives, and they're going to be kind of set free from their addictions and, and things that they're going to, you know, it's a, it's a belief in a kind of a spiritual form. Still, I wasn't interested in it. I mean, at the time, I believed in God. I just didn't believe in Jericho <laughs> marches, I guess. And so I didn't want to do that, but I did want to be obedient, and we were all up in the altar area. And, and at least this is, this is, again, I'm not exactly sure how things happened, but in my memory, this is how this happened. That he called my name. Waddell And my first thought is I didn't know he knew my name But then I realized oh wait he's talking to me And so I look up and I can't Again in my memory The crowd in front of me And it was a big crowd four or five hundred people Parted like the waters of the Red Sea (laughs) And there was these steps That led up to the platform So up I go And he's looking at me And he says God's looking for a Joshua and I'm like, man, I really like you, preacher. But I'm not going to lead no Jericho March. <laughs> and he laid his hands on me and he prayed for me. And I danced around a bit and fell down. And uh, I'm not sure what happened next. Um, the service just went on. I don't think there was a Jericho March, although I'm still quite confident that's what he had planned, at least initially. And I'm in bed that night. And maybe, maybe the only time I've actually heard God speak to me, like existentially speak to me, was that night in bed. And what God said was, you are my Joshua. But I knew in the moment that it wasn't the protege of Moses who had led the conquest against Jericho. There's another Joshua, or lots, but there's a particular Joshua in the storyline who is a priest after the exile. They've come back from Babylon. It's after death. It's after destruction. It's after a time that we thought, this can't be fixed. And the people find themselves again in Jerusalem, except There is no temple because it's been destroyed. And there's a priest, his name's Joshua, but he has no place to do his ministry. And so God speaks through the prophet Zechariah to the people and they say, hey, prepare Joshua because he's going to have to do the priestly role. But there's no place for him to do the priestly role. So the word of the Lord comes to the governor, his name's Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, and he says... Not by might, nor by power. Not, not by strength, not by effort, not by economic success. But by the Spirit of the Lord, you will build my temple. And sure enough, Zerubbabel built a temple that Joshua then ministered in. And the two of them, the governor and the priest, are referred to as olive trees anointed ones, that's what that stands for, who stand before the Lord of all the earth, which is exactly the same language used for the two witnesses in Revelation. They are olive trees, which stand before the Lord of all the earth, kingly, like Zerubbabel, and priestly, like Joshua. And again, in a very existential way, how things are remembered, how things are told and retold, how life changes and we pray for different things and we experience different things but our faith just keeps on going right it it changes because life changes us but it also just keeps coming at us because our god is alive he's not just some idea and here it comes at me again because <laughs> when when i heard god say you are my joshua I knew that that email from Larry wasn't just an idiotic idea. It was like a prophecy that my father was one of the two witnesses. He was like Zerubbabel. He was the king. He was the one who had sacrificed, who had made a space, right? It was his financial sacrifice that made possible my education. And now he had made a sanctuary that this Joshua was going to be able to serve in. So whether it's an opportunity to stand before you and preach. Or whether it's an opportunity to stand before my students and teach at the college. Every time I feel like this is a sanctuary that has been prepared for me to do this. And I know that we have a diversity of thought and beliefs. I know that that our culture is pushing us apart. You know, we could talk about the culture wars until we're blue in the face. But as we did a series a while back, we are not called to those wars. We are called, as Mako Fujimura says, to culture care. We we are called to love and serve. We, We are called to sacrifice. And we are called to remember Remember who we are. Remember whose we are. And that remembering is not just a naivete about, oh, how things were so good back in the old days. It's a true memory. It's a memory about faithfulness. It's a memory that reminds us who we are. You know, a number of years ago, the band's going to come and they're going to sing a song, Things I Prayed For. And when you hear it, Hopefully you'll realize why I chose that song for this day. But you remember several years ago when Mother Teresa passed, um, her journals became kind of public knowledge. And one of the things in her journals that really bothered a lot of people was that she had said it had been about 40 years since she felt the presence of God. And most people are like, ooh, 40 years since I felt the presence of God. I'd have given up. Yeah, you, yeah, maybe you would have. Maybe I would have. you know what? She didn't. Because she had been through the waters of the Red Sea. She had had her experience with God. And she remembered it. And she remembered it well. And her memory of that kept her going. And so for you today, here's my question. What is it in your life where you know that there was this time there was this experience there was this stream there was this series of activities or events that you know that you kind of encountered God and can you remember that can you remember that red sea experience for all of us in some ways it was baptism because in our baptism we identify with Christ in the water and his death as we go down, and his resurrection, as we come up. We should remember our baptismal vows that I believe in Jesus and I denounce evil. And these things can sustain us. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.